We thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit to instruct us and to teach us in all things. And Lord God, you're the one that can take your word and your message and help us to understand. And so we yield to you right now in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Okay. Well, we're going through the book of Hebrews. And uh, believe it or not, we're at, at the ninth chapter of the book of Hebrews. We've been working verse by verse and getting through there. Uh, I know we got Hanukkah message next week, so we won't do any Hebrews next week, and who knows what else is in between. But today is Hebrews 9, so if you would open up to chapter 9, uh, we understand that 8 and 9 flow together. Uh, the chapters are not necessarily by the Holy Spirit, but they're very helpful. Somebody decided to divide the Bible up by putting chapters in. The original writings was just written and, and letter was sent. Uh, but, but the numbering system that we have in our scriptures are created by people way, way back and, and it's a useful system. Uh, as I've said before, sometimes it can throw you off because we have a tendency, you know, here's a chapter and so we tend to think everything that has to be said is just said in that chapter. Now we go to the next chapter and forget the chapter before. But in reality, it continues to flow as one letter. So you don't forget what you came, learned before. So we don't forget that we just came out of the eighth chapter where he's really trying to drill the point of a new covenant. And when he says new, he means new. He's not just warming over something old and making it look good and all that. He means new. He means it comes with, with greater authority, greater, greater sacrifice, uh, the more righteous sacrifice, better promises, he says, are involved in this covenant. And so we have to recognize that. And then the difficult thing for us is on a lot of levels, because we have a hard time separating the content of a covenant from the covenant itself. We do. We really have a hard time with that. So we think a covenant, we think that, that if, it's, if a covenant is a new one's made, that it, it's no way it could have the content that the one, had, one before had. And that's just not true. In fact, the very definition we saw in the eighth chapter, which was a quoting from Jeremiah of the new covenant, is that God says he would write his Torah inside of you. He'll put it in your heart and in your mind. That's where the Torah is, where before it was done on paper and on stone. And, and, and now it's being put inside of you, inside of your heart, which is a very important thing. I mean, it's one thing to walk in your house. I mean, we have that on, we have a few things on our walls, but one of the things we have if you walk into our door is a, a plaque that has the 10 sayings, the covenants, the 10 sayings that, that the scripture calls, this is the covenant of the Lord, the 10 sayings. And we have that on the wall, and that's nice. And we like to have stuff like that on our wall, but not to prove anything, but really as a reminder of what God has done inside of us. It's just like putting a mezuzah on your door. You putting a mezuzah on the door doesn't make you any more holy and righteous. People, oh, look at that. Now, yes, outsiders, if they understand Jewish tradition, will see that and go, oh, there must be a Jewish family in some form or fashion. They got a mezuzah on their door. But having a mezuzah doesn't make you any more holy. Then having a mezuzah on your door is that as you go out, it is to remind you to not to go out without God's word inside of you. And when you come home, that you leave the junk outside and you take God's word into your home with you. 
So you have God's word before you at all times. Well, in the new covenant, I guess God didn't trust that we would do that so well. So he cited in the new covenant that he would, he himself, by the Holy Spirit, as the foundation, as the fabric of the new covenant, that he's going to take the responsibility of writing his Torah inside of you. He said, well, what's so important about that? Well, the scripture says what, what's in your heart, you know, the issues of man comes out of their heart. Well, if Torah is in your heart, then Torah is what's going to start to come out from you. And when you have to make decisions in life and you dig down deep to make that decision before you for something you're facing, it's going to be Torah that instructs you, not your own ideas and philosophies. And so it's great that we get God's word inside of us because God's word is life. It's like a hammer that crushes the enemy. It's, it's powerful. It's a two-edged sword. Isn't it wonderful to have that inside of you and not have to hold it one minute, get in your car, drive home, and look at the plaque? Okay, I got it. But instead, his word is with you. Or pull out your iPhone and, what is it? okay, no, it's in you now. You, it flows, it guides you, it directs you. So that's one of the powerful things of the new covenant is that God's word is inside of you and will direct you, lead you, and, and guide you in all things. Amen. Isn't that a wonderful place to be? To have God's word leading you. And God says, I will lead you on paths of righteousness for my namesake. God says, as you're traveling, you'll hear a voice to tell you which way to go. Well, that's the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you, and he will bring things to remembrance. That's one of the things the Holy Spirit does. He brings things to remembrance, and then one of the things he's going to bring to remembrance is the things that have been spoken to you by God. And so it's good to have this new covenant where God's word is in you. It's the foundation of your being inside of you. And with that, we understand there's a transitioning taking place then out of the old into the new. As I said last week, some people have a hard time, even in our circles, saying what I just said, that there is a new, new covenant. And they jump through many hopes, many hoops to, hopes also, many hoops to try to come up with ways to, to try to let you know that, you know, we think the content of, the, of the, what's in the old covenant, that it hasn't been done away with, so they come up with things. Oh, it's a renewed covenant. Well, I share with you just very quickly 10 verses or so out of the Torah where the word for new is used, and it never doesn't mean renewed. It means new, a new king, a new house. Not a renewed house, not a renewed king. It means new, something that wasn't there before. And so it is a new covenant, but the content comes from God, his Torah, which is eternal and forever. And so he changes the nature of the covenant in order for the, the content to be real in your life. And so the content is precious to us. And that's good because we can say, like King David did, who the, the, wrote many of the Psalms, you know, oh, how I delight in your Torah. See, if it was done away with, we can't say that. 
we have to say what sadly some of our brothers and sisters say. Well, that's old stuff. That's bad and it's done away with. So we're not going to delight in that old stuff because it's done away with. So all those Psalms, delighting in God's Torah, delighting in his law. Oh, even, even Paul, Rav Shaul, even Paul who says, I tell you that the commandments are just and good. But we're to say, no, they're old and done away. We take what's good and just and we kick it to the curve. What sense does that make? Why would you do that? Why would you take stuff that is good and just and kick it to the curve and say it has no value in your life? That's ridiculous. That's a dumb thing to do. No wonder sometimes in the body we have things going crazy and wrong because we have abandoned Torah. The very thing that's in our heart, that if we just settle for a moment, even without visiting Ahavat Yeshua, just settle in a moment, get in the spirit of the Lord, God will speak to you from Torah. Well, what I find is interesting, I'll just take a little side trail here for a second. What I find is interesting is that people will say that, but they don't really mean that. They'll say it's been kicked to the curb, but they don't really mean that. And the reason why you do is talk to them enough, and you'll hear them pull from Torah to defend various perspectives. Especially in some circles like the, the Word of Faith circles, man, they're going to pull on Torah and the Tanakh to, the, you know, really, you know, prosperity. They're going to find all the prosperity verses and quote them. They don't see those as done away with. Bring all of the tithes into the storehouse. They're going to quote that one. And you never hear them say, well, that's in the Old Testament. They don't quote that one. That, that one stays somehow. Or, or when they're arguing morality issues, they will quote the scripture that says a man should not lie with, with another man as he would with the women, that that is an abomination before the Lord. They'll say that. And there are lots of other scriptures. They'll speak of what they could call the morality of Torah, the morality of God's law that's unending. So even in their theology, they don't quite teach what they sometimes say in the public arena with their lips. And sometimes you got to help them see that, not in a mean way. We don't want to be puffed up with knowledge coming with our chest all out. We want to come in love and help people to see what's in front of them and how important Torah is to them. So let's not forget our brothers. Let's encourage them. And when they get it right, let's say, yeah, that's right. That's God's word. And then another area, well, let's talk about that. Let's talk how that applies today. But we do need to see, as the writer of Hebrews was saying, that there's been a transition in the covenant and there is a change that's taken place, namely a change in the priesthood. As I said to you last week, under the Mosaic order of things, if we wanted to make atonement for our sins, we couldn't go to God in Yeshua's name and by his sacrifice be made right before him because we wouldn't have that particular priesthood by which we are pursuing him, the priesthood of Melchizedek. We would instead be trying to go through the Levitical priesthood and it's very defined how you do that. How do you do a burnt sacrifice? How do you do a sin offering? Last time I checked, there's no place to do that in D.C., we need it. Oh, yeah. But there's no place to do it. We will all have to have trips to Jerusalem, and then when we get there, we will be disappointed because there's no place to do it there either. 
But you can't even do it there, even though it's the only place God says to do it. When you get there, you're like, I'm looking for the altar and the temple and the sacrifice. Oh, we don't have one of those. There's the mosque up on the hill, but we don't think they take animal sacrifices. And you go like, animal sacrifices? I have to bring an animal? Yeah, let's, let's look at the Torah. What does it say here? When you're saying, whether a king, whether part of the community, congregation, bring this particular animal, a lamb, a goat. If you don't have that, you can bring a turtle dove, something that sheds blood. But in the new covenant, I don't know of anybody who's asking for blood atonement from an animal. Not even God. Because he tells us that the system of sacrifices with the animals and all that associated with that were a type and shadow of things to come. That the reality is found in Messiah Yeshua. That he brings the fullness of what God was wanting people to understand actually from the very beginning. When God made animal skins for Adam and Eve. And that's the Hebrew word there when he says he made a covering for them. The word literally means animal skins. Now, it doesn't give us all the details, but last time I checked, they weren't wearing live animals. It said animal skin, which meant they had to be killed, and they put on these skins. And I had to, I can only just, I can't, you know, stand it. This is what exactly happened. I know they were given animal skins. I know you have to kill an animal to get skins on them. That's the way it works throughout all the time. And I would have to imagine that Adam and Eve knew that animal had to be killed to cover them, that the, the leaves weren't cutting it. The leaves weren't going to do it. Their covering, the thing they came up with, their system, not going to cover you need the blood. And they got that right. And then it's backed up again with Cain and Abel. And we realize that Abel, his sacrifice, blood, was accepted for the Lord. But, you know, the Cain went out and worked the cursed land and was able to bring forth some harvest from that and said, here you go, God. Here's a sacrifice that you require. And God says, I'm not pleased with that. And we go all the way throughout. We see Noah gets off. First thing he does, he kills an animal. We get to Moses. First thing he's done when they get established, he kills the blood of bulls and goats and sprinkles it on the people. If we, don't, if we can't catch the hint that blood is important here, I don't know. We're, we got closed eyes and we're rereading the Bible a different way. Blood atonement is so central to being right with God. And God is training his people in that way until the fullness of time, which comes with Yeshua, and Yeshua becomes the atoning sacrifice for sin. Not with the blood of bulls and goats, but his own blood, we read. His own blood he enters in. And he is a priest that is a priest forever. He doesn't have to be sacrificed again. He did it once for all. The blood atonement he brings is not only able to cover over, but cleanses you, has the power to make you holy and righteous. So now we're saying with all of that, hey, do we understand that there's an old that's fading out and a new that's come in? And we want the new. And that's what we came out of. It's not that he did away with his Torah, but he makes it very clear in the, in the eighth chapter, 
a new covenant. He's made the first obsolete, and then what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And people jump through a lot of hoops and say, oh, no, no, that's not talking about the covenant. It's talking about this. No, it's, I'm sorry. I've read this five different ways. I've looked at every different translation. I've read so many reports on it. I've looked at the Greek on it. I looked at the structure of it. And I'm telling you, the context of it's very clear. When he says, I'm talking about a new, he, there's no other context you can pour in. People try to say, no, he was just talking about the priesthood there. No, he wasn't. He's talking about covenant. That's the context. And there is a new covenant. But the new covenant is not void of Torah. Torah is central to it. And so he flows to the ninth chapter out of this thought. Then indeed, then indeed, even the first, and most of the, some of your translations will have the word covenant italicized. Again, it's letting you know that the Greek underneath that does not have the word covenant. But the translator is saying to make sense of this and the flow of the context, when he talks about first, he's, he's, got, he's talking about the flow of what he was talking about before, which is about covenant. So most translations will say, then indeed, even the first covenant has ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is, called, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which has the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides of gold, and which were the golden pot that had the manna, what is it? Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we can now cannot now speak in detail. So let's take this first chunk here. The first, the context does demand covenant. So the first covenant, he says, now I want to go back. So he's comparing new and old is what he's trying to do. And remember, let's not lose the context of the whole book of Hebrews. It's talking to Jewish believers who were going through a lot of persecution for following after Yeshua and were getting to question whether or not Yeshua was the way to go that whether they should leave Yeshua and go back to old ways and consider the blood of Yeshua of no importance, of not, of not of any significance, or should they continue? So the writer's saying, no, guys, you should continue. Yeshua is of a greater weight of glory. He's higher than the angels. He's higher, he's higher than the prophets. He's higher than Moses. He's higher than the Levitical priesthood. He has a greater weight of glory than anything before. And it's not saying that those things that happened before did not have any weight of glory because they did. Because the people he knew he was talking to listened and said, hey, they knew they should listen to the prophets and the angels and Moses and the Levitical priesthood. They knew that God was saying that those people that came before spoke for God. Now his son is speaking. How much more should you listen to his son and follow after him if you're going to listen to all the rest? And so now he goes on and he's trying to show them that in Yeshua, there's a greater weight of glory even in the blood atonement, even in the sacrificial system, even in the very nature of the covenant itself. So he's doing a comparison thing. Here's what was before. And what was before was a great weight of glory. The things under Moses carried great weight. But I'm now trying to tell you that whatever you see in the old way, I'm telling you that in the new, it's of a greater weight of glory. And the promise is even better. So he's going to continue to do this comparison thing in hopes to encourage his Jewish brethren 
to not shrink away from following after Yeshua because of persecution. Does that make sense? And maybe we have to do that today. Maybe choosing to follow Yeshua hasn't put you in favor with certain people. Maybe choosing to follow Yeshua, maybe even your own family rejects you, thinks that something's going wrong with you. And there can be pressure to let it go or at least play it down. Let me just hide this thing in him so I can fit in with my friends and my family, my coworkers. If I really stand up for Yeshua, that's going to put me in the outs with people. You'd be amazed at how many believers in the workplace, nobody knows that they're a believer. And they've had plenty of opportunity to share their faith. Not trying to force it in a business meeting. At the business meeting, you're doing the business meeting. But in the general conversation, office talk that takes place in every office. Is there not office talk at office? Do not people talk about the news and what they're going to do for the weekend and what's happening here? And there you are, and there, there you, you can either sit there and go, I'm not going to say anything because they're going to find out I'm a believer, and then they're going to be like, I can't believe you believe that. We thought you were a scientist like the rest of us. And, da, 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 da. and believers do that. Be quiet. Go back to my desk. I'm not going to get in this mess. Go sit down. But maybe the Spirit of the Lord says, speak up. Amen. For example, you're going to get a wonderful opportunity when people are going to say, well, you know what? I just can't believe that president sat there and declared Jerusalem to be the capital of, of Israel. I just can't believe that's just causing too much problem. Or you can say, praise the Lord, I'm so glad he finally had enough guts to stand up and do what every other president said. They said they supported Israel but never did anything about it. I'm glad that man put himself out there like that. Let's just settle the issue. Jerusalem is Israel's capital. It's been so for ever since God established it. Why should we be afraid to acknowledge that? Oh, it's upset the peace thing. Well, maybe the people on the other side just need to get on board with what God is doing and accept it. If you think Islam is doing their protests out of some sense of we really want peace, and we've now been hurt because the president of the United States says that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. I heard one guy came out and said more of the truth. He came straight out and said, Jerusalem is for Islam, not for anyone else. I said, ah, now we're getting to the core of the matter. Now it's coming out. Last time I checked, not one of any of the groups that said they were going to drive Israel into the sea has ever come out with a news meeting saying we recant and repent of that statement. They have never turned from that. They are purpose that there will be no Jewish state. Getting the Palestinian state is simply to be in a place to be able to easily launch into the rest of Jerusalem and destroy it. 
There's no recanting. Look what happened when, when Gaza, when Israel, which I, I didn't agree with this decision, but I, you know, I don't run that country, but they decided in hopes of peace, pulled out their people out of settlements they had in Gaza. Pulled them out. We're going to pull them out as a sign that we want peace. So they took all these Jewish settlers out and took them back and found new places for them. And the moment they did that and everything was turned over, the representatives in Gaza for the Palestinians stood up and said, see, they are acknowledging what we've said all along, that the land belongs to us. Now let's go get the rest of it. It didn't move the peace treaty anywhere closer. If anything, it caused, there were lots of attacks that built underground tunnels that come up on Israel's side and attacking people, and it just it led to more war. People really want peace. It can happen, but they don't really want peace. Or at least their definition of peace is to control the entire place. Now, I know this is political and it's controversial, but it's biblical. God gave the world is his and everything in it. It all belongs to him. He can decide who is in and who's out. He gave the land to his people when other people were already there. You either accept it that he said to Moses, you know, hey, you're going to be the one to lead the people and take them in. But then Moses messed up. Well, you're not going to, but Joshua will complete it. Well, there were people, they didn't come in and found an empty place. People were already living there, and they went to war with those people. And they moved in, and they inherited land. Do you understand that inheriting the land meant with a sword? That's what God sent them in to do. And you may not like that. You might be a peace person. Boy, I just don't like the whole idea of war. It's just so bad. It's not loving. Well, then you have a problem. How do you deal with a God who says, go and wipe them out? The animals, the children, and everything. See, that's a hard one for some people. Part of the reason they have a hard time is they only see life on this side of eternity, not understanding that God has all of eternity. But he gave the land. And he set up the precepts concerning who would be in the land, who would not be in the land. He gave the precepts of, of the people that Israel, if they sinned, what would happen to them. He's the one that says, oh, yeah, I'll let you know ahead of time. If you really screw up and you keep messing up, I'm going to bring all kind of plagues and judgments against you. Then I'm going to scatter you to the four corners of the earth. He decided that. He's the one that decided I will remove my, prote my protection, Ichabod, the glory has departed, and my temple that was made for me to dwell in, I'm going to allow it to be destroyed. Whoa. You know, he's the one even before all of that that allowed the Ark of the Covenant to be taken away by the Philistines. The Ark of the Covenant, God's word, his dwelling place gets taken away. Yeah, they brought it back because God has covenant with them. God has covenant with his people. He even said when they go to four corners, he would bring them back into the land. In between that time, all kinds of people can live there. And we go all the way through history, we go all the way up to 70 CE when the, when the temple was destroyed the second time and wiped out. And we read all the battles with the Romans and between Romans and the Jewish people and how Rome got so fed up with it, they finally wiped out everything, put another city on, on the side, moved other people into the land, renamed the place to call it uh, Palestine. It wasn't called that before. 
and move other people in and set it up that way. There's other people moving in. And we can go through history, all the wars, all the fightings, and the land coming under different people's control, even at one time under Islam. Then we can read about how eventually the Western world gathers up. The British Empire says, you know what? We feel a mandate to go in and re-grab the Holy Land. And they did. And then it's under their authority and power. And from a secular perspective, whoever has that land can decide who to give it to. From a secular perspective. But make no mistake about it, all along the way, it doesn't matter what group was ruling Rome, whether it was various, the Ottoman Empire, or whether it's the British Empire, God maintains his right to the land. It's his. And he can give it to whoever he wants to. And he said that his people would come back, and Britain got it. They kind of got it. That's the one good thing they did do. I'm not in favor of everything the British Empire does, but that's one good thing they did. That they made the Balfour Declaration, and they said, you know, we're going to give Israel a place, a homeland. At the same time, they offered the other groups a place, and the other groups were told by all the other nations around that hated Israel, say, hated the Jewish people, hey, don't accept the deal. Because once Israel becomes a nation, we're going to come in, we're going to wipe it out, and then you have the whole thing to yourself. Well, it didn't go that way. They got tricked because they didn't consider the God of heaven who fights for Israel. They didn't consider that. So here we are today, and, and so the land's there, and it belongs, and God can establish whoever he wants to, and, and, and people stand up for that, and who knows what's coming up the road, but I'm, I'm happy for the decision that was made, and I hope Israel sees that as a sign that there are people who really supports them and stands with them and praying for them. But anyway, so there is a new covenant, and there is an old one, and they both have sanctuary. So that's why he says the first had ordinance of divine services, really regulations. Uh, it, it speaks to legislation, legal rules, rights, things that you're required to do. And we know that by just going back and reading about the priests and what they had to do. That's, that's what we're talking about here. The ordinance of divine service. This is the priests serving in the temple. What sacrifices they're supposed to bring in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, at feast times, at feast days, uh, when people come with their certain sins, that what, how they're supposed to enter into God's presence, what the priest's role was, what the person's role was, the, the person identifying with the animal, this pure, innocent animal that's to die for your sins, and you put your hand upon that animal, and you, com- you confess and identify that this should be your sacrifice. All of this is part of the divine service that God established under the Mosaic Covenant. The divine service is service rendered to God. There's one way that can be translated. Service rendered to God. It's a sanctuary service. It's not you working at your workplace or anything, but this had to do with worship at the temple before the Lord. He says, and a worldly sanctuary, some translation says. The word worldly there means earthly. It means of this world. Doesn't mean worldly in the sense that sometimes we speak of things being worldly. You know, we mean bad. That's how we use it. And in some places it is like that, but not all the time. It, it means, this is the word cosmos. It's, it's where we get the cosmos, the world, the things made with the, that, that, that are around us. 
And so when he says they're worldly, they literally mean an earthly sanctuary. This is not a divine one. This is not a spiritual one. This is one that's on the earth. It's one of this substance. The word sanctuary means that which is set apart. It uses the Greek word hagios, which means to be set apart, to, to be holy. It's like the Hebrew word kadosh. To be holy, to be set apart. That's what the, it's used here. The, the, the set apart place, the place that should have reverence to it. See, he's already introduced back in Hebrews 8, 1 through 6. He's already introduced that the service of Melchizedek, high priesthood, is in the true sanctuary, in the true tabernacle, the heavenly one. See, he already introduced that concept, and now he's coming back to that and saying, look, even, that's why he says also, because he's already talked about heavenly sanctuary. He says, but even the earthly one had divine, had divine service, service to God. He then goes on and he says, for a tabernacle, literally a tent, was prepared for the first. That's what we're at, meaning there was a first part of this tabernacle. Okay, what we call the holy place. And which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, okay? The candlestick, candlestick would have been a seven-branch menorah, not a Hanukkah, not the nine-branch, but seven branches. And they used pressed olive oil, and they made lanterns, and it was the job of the priest to go in and keep that lit. It's to be burning before them all the time. Uh, the table, is, it was placed in there, and that's where they, you know, like any table, it's where you put food, in this case, is where they put the consecrated loaves, the showbread. And the word showbread is an interesting word. It, it, it literally means to set something out so it may be viewed. It's called the showbread. It's a weird way, but that's the Greek that goes with it. And so, that, so he mentions that that's in the holy place. Then he goes on. And behind the second veil, because there was a veil between the first and the second, he said behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all or the holy of holies. This is the most inter part of the tabernacle. There's the outer court and then there's the tent. You go into the holy place. Priests went in there all the time. They went in there every day. At least three times a day, they were in there serving and doing things and going in and out, but they didn't go into the most holy part except once a year. At what? Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was the only time they went into the most holy place. So he goes on to talk about the most holy place, which has the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant. This is where the Ark was, which was overlaid with, on all sides with gold, and which was the golden part that had the manna. We know the manna, the word for manna means what is it? That's, they didn't know what to call what God blessed them with that we call bread, but it literally gave it the word manna. What is it? We don't know what it is. I guess it's the one food that you, you can go, what is it, that you could eat. Most of the time when I go, what is it, I'm not touching until I know what it is. But manna would have been an exception. He goes on and he says, Aaron's rod that was budded, we know that was placed in the ark. And the tablets of the covenant, so we have the tablets. Interesting, it says tablets. People argue with what that is. Some people say, well, it was two separate tablets. Or, uh, and people argue, what, is, what did it look like? They had the first five commandments on one tablet and the next five on the others. But 
Others were arguing, saying, no, 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 no. I mean, they knew how to put things on two sides. And, and so they had argued that. And the thing is, it's interesting that in making covenant, that there was an exchange that, that, if, that if I was going to enter into a covenant with someone, that I would have a copy of the covenant and they would have a copy of the covenant. So it's a possibility, the reason why it says the tablets is not because they couldn't get all the commandments on one stone, the 10. I mean, I got a plaque at home that has all 10 on. I, I, I figured Moses could figure that out too. And it's like a nice thing. But it's possible, and I can't say for sure, but it's possible in entering into covenant, God was saying, here's yours, here's mine, but we're going to keep it here. Place where I meet as a reminder of the covenant. I don't know for sure. But it is interesting that it does say tablets and not just a tablet, not just one. Anyway, moving on. Because that's not the thrust of what is being said here. And above it were the cherubim of gold overshadowed with the mercy seat. We know the cherubim were a type of angel, special type of angel whose responsibility was to cover the throne in God. In fact, the evil one, Lucifer, Satan, that was his job. His job was to cover the throne. He was before God at his throne. And it is believed that at one time he was the only one. Out of all the angelic force, Lucifer was above them all of the angelic force. He had a high position. This is why Michael the archangel doesn't say, look, I'm over you, man. You're going to do what I say. No, Michael says no. He wouldn't even bring a railing accusation against Lucifer, but simply says, the Lord rebuke you. He recognized that even after being fallen, after falling, that Lucifer held a high position of authority and power. And according to Ezekiel, he was the cherubim that was before the throne. And the nature of how they described him, he reflects the glory of God. And we know in Isaiah, it says that, you know, he looked within himself and he saw this glory and he sought to exalt himself because he felt, you know, look at me, look at me how I'm shining. That would be like the moon today. You know, seeing itself shining and going, look at me shine. I'm really something. Look how great I am that I can shine. Look at me, this light coming out of me. Not realizing that the only reason why you have light is because there's the sun that's shining upon you. It's like the diamonds that many women have on their finger. They love their diamonds. They sparkle. They're brilliant. They're nice. Try seeing what it looks like in a dark room. It's dark. There's nothing great about it at all. It doesn't shine. A flashlight will do better than your diamond ring. But you won't trade your diamond ring for a flashlight. That's one thing for sure. But you do understand it's the other light that makes your diamond so bright. It's been fashioned to reflect the glory of the light that comes in in such a way that really it should give glory to the light around, not to itself. But Lucifer took it upon himself that it was his glory. And he wanted to be exalted. I will be like the most high. And sin was found in him. So God switched up things a little bit. And he says, you know, we're not going to have one cherubim. We're going to have two. 
And where they are designed, they cover their wings and they're looking towards each other. And so some people will say, some scholars will say it was a way of balance, a way of running in check that this wouldn't happen again. I don't know. It doesn't say exactly that in Scripture. It just says there are two now. And so he mentioned there are cherubims that are over this thing, and it's the cover of the ark. It's also the space between them was called the mercy seat. This is the place where God came to, the atonement was made. This is the place that blood was put upon at Yom Kippur to make atonement for the sins of Israel. It's a place that, that God would meet with his people and bring mercy, atonement, propitiation. So, so it, all these things are things that are there that we know are part of the mosaic. And then he makes this statement of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. That's a very strange sentence. He spends all his time starting to lay out how these things work. And I'm thinking, I, I mean, just me, myself, I can, I can go back and read the Torah and read, give some more detail about these things. The Torah gives a whole lot more detail than what's been presented here. So it gets a very strange wording in most translations that say, I can't speak about this in detail. What does it mean? That, that verse has bothered me for years. So I, of course, took the time to really study it. And then to find out that it doesn't necessarily be translated that way. And there are some translations that don't translate it that way. More literal, scholarly translation says, well, the thrust of it is on the context of a person saying, that's not the point of what I'm talking about right now. But the emphasis that I cannot talk to you about in detail is like, it's like if I was running and I saw David, I said, oh, David, I, I got to tell you what, what's happening, but I really can't get into it right now. I can't get into details, but we can talk later. But right now, it's not time. We got to go deal with this over here. That's what a lot of scholars said the writer was saying. So look, I, I'm telling you about all these things, but that's not the point. That's not what I'm really trying to get into. I'm not trying to explain to you the workings of the, the, the lampstands and the showbread and all that. that. That's not what I'm trying to write about. These are not the things I want to discuss with you at this point. Let's get to the, the things that we're really talking about. And that's what he does. He moves on. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part in the tabernacle. So I'm going to get all into that other stuff. I'm not going to get sidetracked. I want to continue on talking about what the priests are doing. So they say they go into the first part. You know, I was so tempted to do the very thing he said not to do. I, I was all ready to lay out so we could spend a couple of weeks talking about the details of the temple. And, and it's when I started doing it and started thinking about it, I went, hold it, that's, that's not the point here. That's not what the writer's trying to do. He's not trying to give a, you already got the Mosaic Law. You want to learn about that? Go read about it. And so I had to even resist that. You know, I even have here in my notes, I had a, when I put this together, I started this last week, and I was putting my notes together, and I said, oh, go off and talk about the details. And I even have a section here that said, now that we're back from the details. So I just skipped the other section and went right to, okay, let's, let's get to the point. And that's what the writer's doing. Let's get to the point. And so he says, and when these things have been thus prepared, the priests always went to the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But in the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. 
The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the Holy Hall was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. It's concerned only with foods and drink, and this is not talking about rules of kashrut. Don't let anybody grab here and say, see, the new covenant doesn't care about kosher and all that. That's not what it's talking about. The foods and drink here is talking about the sacrifices and the gifts and the drink offerings. This is the context that we're in. He said it was only concerned about foods and, and drink, and it's symbolic. It's concerned about various washings, and if you study the priesthood, you see all these washings that have to take place. And fleshly ordinances doesn't mean fleshly in the sense of worldly, bad, evil, but meaning things of the physical and not of the spiritual. Fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation that these things were put in place until the fullness of what God was doing would come in. It's just like it says in Galatians. He says the Torah, the law, was given as a schoolmaster while you were a child to watch over you. This is a schoolmaster lived and he watched over you and he told you, like, it was more like a, a, a governor, a governance or, or a governess or a nanny or something like this, somebody who took responsibility to get you up to fulfill the wishes of the master of the house. And so this law would watch over you, would tell you what to do, what not to do. But when you come to the fullness of maturity, or as the writer of Galatians says, of faith, you don't need a governess. Hopefully you don't have somebody, you know, get in the morning, help you put your clothes on, brush your teeth, you know, walk you out and look both ways and walk you across the street and deliver you at school. I hope. I don't know. Maybe Rob might have somebody to take him to work. I don't know. They, okay, then you go to your office right now and get your job done. Now, I'm sure he makes it. He gets there on his own because he understands the principle of commitment and discipline to his job to do his work. We understand if we're in school, we're supposed to go to class, we're supposed to study, we shouldn't have to have somebody hold us by the hand anymore because we've come into the place of maturity where we walk by faith and therefore we have brought into our own being the desire and nature of the master of the household that we no longer need a nanny to take care of us. See, it's so sad that many believers read Galatians and they read what I just said and they use it as a reason why Torah has been done away with. And they don't understand that it's not Torah that's been done away with. It's the role of Torah as your nanny that's done away with because you've come to the place of faith where you, and you trust the Father, you are putting full confidence in everything he says. You're looking at the, at the bronze thing that, that was made that if you look at it, you would be healed and you just believe him and you trust him. And out of that comes life for you and righteousness that causes you to obey and do the very thing that the Father would want you to do. Wouldn't it be awful to spend all this time training your kids of the right thing to do, and when they come of age and you release them, that they disobey everything you've spent your whole life training them to do? They don't wash their hands after going to the bathroom anymore. 
They don't go to the bathroom. They just wet themselves. They just run out in the street as grown adults and get hit. They don't say thank you anymore. They don't say please. They don't show respect because they've become grown up now. And now that they've grown up, they can do what they want to do. That's a lie. My wife and I always say that. That was a lie. Somebody told me, once you get grown up, you can do whatever you want to do. Not true. Where I got liberties in other hands, I all of a sudden had all these people speaking to me that didn't used to speak to me before. One called the IRS. They never talked to me when I was a kid. Didn't bother with me. Boy, they sure will talk to me now. They remind me all the time, this is what you owe me. And if I don't pay, thank God I've always paid. I don't know what they do. I just, no, I, 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 this sister used to work for me. She would tell me what they would do. Send you a lot of letters. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know there's more to it after all them letters. He's trying to show us these washings, these, these fleshy ordinances, all these things that were done in order to work in our lives a right relationship with God. All these things done in the natural, in this world, the earthly realm. And now, he says, but now let's do a comparison. But Messiah, the Mashiach, the one I've been talking about, the anointed one, the one that's higher than the angels, the one that's higher than Moses, the one that's higher than the prophets, the one that's higher than the Levitical priesthood. He came as high priest of the good things to come. Do you understand the good things come? It's tapping into the Jewish concept of the world to come, where the fullness of God's kingdom has entered into this world and everything is made in right order, where the things that are low are made high and where the mountains are brought down, where there are no more tears, no more sorrow, every tear is wiped away, there's no more death or disease. He's saying, that's what we're looking to come into this earth. That's the kingdom that's coming. What some people call the sweet by and by in Christian circles. We know that sweet by and by breaks into this world. It's not up there sitting in heaven on a cloud, but it comes into this world. Do we understand that? That's what the world to come, that's our hope. That's where the Messiah is. That's where the kingdom is coming in its fullness. It's broken into this world already, but we're waiting for the fullness of it to be established where everything that's wicked and evil is put in its place. And so he says, Yeshua comes as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tent or tabernacle not made with hands. That is not of this creation. See, this wasn't made from the earthly things. This existed before God says, let there be. This kingdom was there. God had a throne. God had a a place. And now he created the earthly world. He says, when he created the earthly world, he didn't create this tabernacle that Yeshua went into. It already existed. Not with the blood of goats and calves. But with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all. 
It's not an ongoing thing. This is a one-time deal. He went in. It is perfect atonement for you. Having obtained eternal redemption. The nature of what he's brought into you is everlasting, is of a nature that is not of this world, but it carries the character and the stamp of God and his holiness. This is the type of redemption that has been purchased for you. It's not just a simple forgiveness of your sin, but it has an eternal nature to it by the very nature of God is imparted to you in this life that he gives to you. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean. See, he didn't know more about what was going on there. He didn't know more details. He didn't mention the ashes of the heifer before, so he knew more about it. He was, that wasn't the point. So if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, of the physical nature, of, so you can enter into the holy space and you can go in and out without being struck dead. If, if the physical stuff that was done, the blood of bulls and goats, if that could do all this to purify so you could go into the temple and the holy place, how much more shall the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without spot to God? Let that sink in. How much more shall the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal spirit, you know, the spirit was not absent at the day that Yeshua was hung on the tree. He was very much operating and working. We know that after the place was shaken and a few folks were resurrected coming out of the graves. The spirit of God is moving and operating. But he offered himself without spot to God. How much more shall his blood cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let that sink in. How much more? How much more shall the blood of Messiah Yeshua cleanse you, your conscience, free you, so that you might serve the living God. Yeshua came to do more than just forgive you for your sins. That's just the starting point. He came to make you a new creation, a new person, totally changed, where the power of sin is broken off in your life. You do not have to say yes to the evil one. He cannot make you do it. Some of us are old enough to remember the Flip Wilson show. Show our ages now. We used to sit at home and watch the Flip Wilson show. And one of the things Flip Wilson would do is say, the devil made me do it. How many remember that? There's a bunch of old, old listeners here. Some of y'all watching the old channel. You're not old enough to remember that. You're watching one of them old TV channels. You weren't old enough to see that. The devil did not make you do it. You did it. You chose to do it. You gave in to the temptation. And it's your sin and your sin alone. 
One thing God loved about David, he said, David, after man in my own heart, then I read about all the things David did. He lied. He did all kinds of stuff. He had a person killed. He did a whole bunch of stuff. He committed adultery. And I said, this is a guy after your own heart. I can do that. <laughs> oh, man. And I had to realize that's not what he was talking about. That's not what he's talking about at all. He wasn't talking about some of the actions that David did. He was talking about the heart of David, that even if and when he sinned, in this case, he didn't make excuses for it. He says, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. And maybe somebody stand out and say, hold on now. <laughs> what you did that killed me. So I don't know about that. But he understood that ultimately he must answer to God and that the ultimate thing, we need to serve him. And he wouldn't make excuses. And he would come clean and say, I have sinned against you. I have transgressed against you. Oh, Lord, creating me a new heart, renewing me a right spirit, oh, God. Yeshua came to free you from the excuses, from the deceptions, from the lies, to give you a new heart, a new spirit, so you can choose the things of the kingdom, not the things of the world. And walk his way, not what you feel. Feelings are some of the hardest things to overcome. You know why? Because we feel them. We feel it in our bones. We feel it in our heart. We feel it in our stomach. We just feel it. And we get that. You get anxious about something, you don't only just get a headache. You, ugh, something down inside gets wrong. You feel it deep down inside of you. So we're in tune with that. And the problem is we sometimes believe that the things we feel are reality and truth. But I can prove to you that's not the case by simply taking you to the IMAX theater and let you see something like flight at the museum and have that big screen in front of you. You are sitting in a chair with a big screen. You are not in the air. But this thing will start, and it'll start, and flight. And it will start to move, and it'll go left, and you will grab your seat chairs. Anybody been there? It will load me. And you know, you look, hold it, you're not moving. You're not in the air, Gene. Why do we grab on to the chairs like we think we're in a plane flying when we're not? Because we're being lied to. I see all of this stuff coming in, a little special sound effect of wind and all that. Ears add all that to it. And you look and it tells you you are flying. And you feel like you're flying, that you will grab the arms of the chair. But you're not flying. Your eyes are lying to you. Your ears are lying to you. Well, what about other senses? They have these theaters, they, they call them 4D theaters. It's not only they put on goggles for 3D, but they have special effects where they spray stuff on you and things vibrate and all that, and it makes it a reality to you. How many of you ever wore those virtual goggle things? And you're like walking around in a room and looking up and down and, and everything. And suddenly you're on the edge of a cliff and you're, you're standing in your living room. But you're going, oh, oh, oh. Because your senses are telling you this is real when it's not. Well, that's what people do spiritually. 
The evil one comes and he works through your feelings and emotions and he tried to tempt you to say, this is the way to get out of your situation. You should lie right now. This is the way you get out of this situation. Hey, go drink some alcohol. That'll take off the pain. Go use some drugs. That'll make you feel good. Go watch some pornography. That'll, you won't feel so lonely. You'll feel better. And you got the virtual goggles on. You're like, yeah. Not knowing that you're being led to death. Take the goggles off. See the reality of the word of God and make a choice for the word and say, God, I will follow you. And sometimes your senses take a while before they will agree. But his word is true. Stand on his word. That's where the liberty is. That's where the freedom is. Thank you, Father. Well, I have a whole lot more, but the time's run out. Some good stuff, too. Oh, man. Man, I was hoping to get to that. Well, we'll have to get to that another time. There is a new covenant. Let's let the worship team return. There is a new covenant built on better promises. Yeshua is our high priest. He brings forgiveness of sin. He breaks the power of sin. You do not have to say what the evil one says to do. You can say no. Yes, it's perfectly, I'm saying this to all the young people, it's perfectly okay to say no to Satan. And yes to your parents. <laughs> when they ask you, say, hey, I need you to go clean your room. I need you to go do this. Stop hitting your sister. Stop kicking your brother. Stop doing whatever it is you're doing you're not supposed to do. Stop it. Come here right now. That you learn to say yes to that. Hallelujah. But say to the enemy when he tries to tempt you to do what's evil and wrong, to say no. Say no, Daniel. Say no. Right? Yeah, no, no. You got to say it with some conviction. No. Get out of my face. <laughs> Get out of my grill. Stop talking to me. No. You got to have that authority and power that you have in Yeshua and say to the enemy, no, I will not give place to you. I will not. You can't make me do it. I love little kids. Because little kids can develop that. You can't make me. <laughs> I love that. Why don't we do that as adults when dealing with the evil one? Let's just put our hands on our hips to the devil and say, you can't make me do that. One of the things I heard uh, Winter say one time, which says, what did you just say? I heard her talking to her peers, and she said to her peers, you don't make me what to do. I said, what did you just say? She laughed. I heard that's one of their sayings. You don't make me what to do. I said, I like that. We got to learn to say that to the enemy when he comes. You don't make me what to do. I'm sure English teachers are going, no, 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 no. <laughs> But reality, the enemy does not make you what to do. Did you know that? Stephanie, did you know that? 
Think many of you doesn't make you what to do? You say what? <laughs> Hallelujah. Father, help us to see that you've given us great power and authority in your son and that you have brought us into a new covenant where our high priest has made atonement for us and he's cleansed us and made us holy people. In Yeshua's name, amen.